Welcome to the Straight Talk Physio Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Andrew Junek and Dr. Craig G.M. Batista. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the seven best non-surgical meniscus tear treatments to get back to doing what you love. Craig, this is a really interesting topic. I know uh, last time we were on talking about uh, meniscus tears and surgery. So we, we discussed kind of the surgical options uh, and some of the different, you know, the different research studies surrounding that. Uh, some are slightly controversial, I would say, in comparison to what's being done in modern day practice. So obviously this episode holds a little bit more near and dear to our hearts because this is some of the stuff that we do to uh, treat these types of meniscus tears and get people back to doing the things that they wanna be able to do uh, without pain. So Craig, do you wanna take it away and start by telling us a little bit about what a meniscus is? Um, just a quick little review and then we'll jump into symptoms and, uh, what our different treatment options are. Yeah, let's get started. So for a little, like you said, for a little more detailed review of this stuff, check out our previous episode because the, the stuff we're going to go over now, we can do the quick and dirty version, but if you want the detailed version, go back, give it a listen, and then kind of revisit this episode. So we're talking about the meniscus today. Menisci, plural, I think that's how Menisci. Right. Yep. Menisci. Sounds right. Sounds right to me. So let's, let's roll with it. So basically two uh, C-shaped cartilage pieces are kind of tough and rubbery that they sit in between the uh, femur and the tibia. So the tibia and femur can sit right on top of each other. Uh, the femur, the end of it is like these two little half circles sitting on like this basically flat tibia. So the C-shaped menisci create this socket. Um, so a little better contact area for the knee and it like absorbs a little bit of shock. So as you can imagine, very prone to having, you know, some sort of damage to it. Um, like we talked about in the last episode, how common are these? So meniscal lesions are likely the most common intra-articular knee injury, and they're one of the most common knee surgeries. Um, do you need to get surgery? Likely not. Listen to the previous episode. You can hear me go on my soapbox about that. Um, one thing I do want to highlight just before we go on, we harp on this all the time, but I still think it's worth saying is nearly all knees, when you look at them under MRI, there's going to be some defect. Um, even with asymptomatic people, up to 30% of these people in these studies we looked at had meniscus tearing and they had no pain. So like we preach all the time, the, the scan is not the only thing that we use in the diagnosis. Uh, surgery likely not the best option. Uh, that's why today we're going to be talking about the non-surgical management. Uh, Symptom-wise, I think, Drew, you talked about that, that last time, um, so might as well bring it home, give us a quick review this time. What are some common symptoms that you tend to see with uh, you know, patients with a meniscus tear or what you would consider like a meniscus, quote unquote, meniscus injury? Yeah, some of the, the common things that we see are usually the pain is located in the front of the knee. It will typically pick a side. So it'll be on the medial or lateral side. So medial is considered the inside of the knee. Lateral is considered more closer to the outside of the knee. Um, usually there's tenderness kind of in the divots of the knee right next to the patellar tendon. So a lot of people know where their patellar tendon is. It's kind of that ropey like structure right down the center of the knee. If you move just to the side of it, um, either side, those are the divots that we're talking about. And usually what you'll find is some tenderness to touch there or some irritation or swelling. Um, there will also be clicking and popping in the knee and usually that clicking and popping is painful. So that's a really important distinction to make, uh, just general clicking and popping. Uh, that could just be just gas bubbles being released. It doesn't ne necessarily have to be correlated to a meniscus injury. So clicking and popping that is typically painful is usually a symptom of meniscus tear. 
uh, catching and locking in that knee. So if you're walking or you go to bend that knee and you feel like you get this sharp jab of pain um, and then the knee gets stuck and you have to do some different things, twist it a certain way or uh, work it a little bit before it unlocks and starts to move again, that's another symptom. Knee buckling. So if you're going up and down stairs and you feel like your knee just wants to give out or if you're going for a long walk and your leg starts to get a little bit fatigued and then you start to feel that your knee just doesn't want to support your body. That's the description of like knee buckling. Uh, and some of the aggravating factors that we see with a meniscus tear is usually painful knee bending, painful squatting. So people are doing back squats, front squats, uh, just air squats sometimes, depending on how bad and how severe the injury is. Pivoting. So this is a really big one when it comes to sports. Twisting and pivoting on that knee usually will is part of a mechanism of what causes the injury. And it's also something that really aggravates and agitates it running and walking. And then obviously we mentioned uh, steps a little bit earlier, um, but those are all some of the different types of symptoms that you can find with a meniscus tear. So as you can see, there's a lot of different things that kind of qualify it to be a meniscus problem. Uh, and that's why sometimes diagnosis in the knee is a little bit tricky uh, because meniscus tear can look very similar to other types of knee pain as well. But knowing, you know, finding a provider who knows exactly what a meniscus tear looks like and how to screen out some of these different things is, is paramount. Yeah, very good. And I'd say I see basically the same kind of stuff. Um, so good to have, you know, two of the same things and we're in different settings. And I think that carries over across both the settings we work in. So with that being said, like when this stuff happens, let's go into our list. Let's go into the seven best non-surgical treatments for meniscus tear. So I'll start us off with number one, and that would be acute management. So whether this is an injury that just occurred, like damage to the meniscus was just happened, or if you had some irritation or some damage in the past, and now for whatever reason, it's aggravating, all of a sudden you're going to have pain for some reason. And when you first get it, we call this like the acute stage of pain. Um, now this can work for chronic pain, which, you know, we can get into a little bit later, but for the acute management of pain, um, the first things is activity modification. We find some ways to relieve the symptoms, whether that be ice, gentle range of motion, um, and then just kind of getting you back to like moving a little like appropriately. And I think one of the most important things to remember with this style of treatment is it looks really similar to what you do right after you have surgery. But I think like from a patient mentality, people don't equate these together. So when I see patients fresh out of meniscus surgery, they, it, it, it makes sense to them that they need to be on crutches for a couple of days. Their knee is going to hurt. Their knee is going to be swollen. Their knee is going to be painful because, you know, I just had surgery. I need to let it rest. I need to let it heal. I need to let my body sort of do its thing. That makes sense to people. For whatever reason, I think patients struggle a little bit more non-operatively because they come in and they're uh, like catastrophizing a little bit or very worried, like, oh man, my knee is swollen. My knee is hurting. My knee is painful, you know? Um, and the first thing we want to do is manage it just like we would post-surgery. Talk about active rest, talk about elevation, talk about ice, activity modification. And then in both people, the symptoms get better because the body's natural healing process will sort of take place. I find it so interesting because it's like a little, it becomes almost nonsensical. Like after surgery, I, I guess for patients, it just makes sense that the knee hurts. Whereas like when you have this acute knee pain and, you know, maybe some patients don't know why it happened to have like a painful swollen knee. I think it doesn't make as much sense because you didn't have surgery and it's like harder to rationalize that out. Um, and that's one thing I've seen in my years of being a PT and I'm not really sure how to fix it. 
But I think that once I kind of explain that the, the, the style of treatment always starts surgical or non-surgical at the same step, people tend to like that. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's something you see in your practice, Drew, or that's just something with this specific kind of injury that I see. It's so common and I just find it so interesting. Yeah, I definitely see that sort of thing with within my practice. I think there's, that's kind of the beauty of this type of injury is there's a lot of carryover between uh, the two settings of ours. So even though I'm usually seeing meniscus tears in athletes and you're seeing them maybe in more of like the, um, the non-athlete population, you know, we still see a lot of that same stuff. Um, but when it comes to activity modification, symptom relief, and then trying to get range of motion back, um, there's nothing better you can do kind of in that like acute stage. Now, Craig, I have another question for you. We'll move on to our next tip um, or next like certain non-surgical treatment dry needling. Um, you'll probably see that this is kind of debated. Like if you go to one provider versus another, they might do dry needling in completely different areas. So what are some of the areas that you dry needle? And then I'll go through some of the areas that I dry needle. And then, um, you know, we'll kind of mix and match there. So dry needling, like you said, just in general, controversial topic. Now, some podcasts you might listen to say dry needling does nothing. Hate it. it doesn't work. Some people might say dry needling is the best. It works for everything. I think in this case, me personally, I like to use it um, for pain relief, especially if this is someone that like might be a chronic problem or something that might be ongoing. I think dry needling can offer a way to like uh, modulate the nervous system or have an effect on like some pain pathways sort of things. Or, you know, if, if this does happen and you've been kind of laid up for a while, not using your knee in the way that it's normally been used, some of the mice muscles around it might get a little tight, might get a little bit irritated. And I think that in my opinion, the dry needling can help with maybe some secondary factors, like not going to heal the, you know, quote unquote, heal the meniscus on its own. But when you do have an injury, other things start to pop up as like secondary symptoms. And I think it can be helpful for the right person working on those secondary symptoms. Um, what about you, Drew? Oh, oh, I didn't answer the question. Where do I dry needle? It was like, Come on, Craig, I, was I was waiting for it. Took off out of left yeah, it rained me, rained me back in. Um, but anyways, uh, <laughs> I'll dry needle anywhere from the lumbar spine all the way down to the foot, really just depending, like some people, their gait is funny. So they start walking weird, back is sore. Other people, um, they're starting to compensate using more hip muscles, hip is sore, uh, locally to the knee. Of course we have the quad and the hamstring. So we're looking at that. Um, a lot of times with this patient population, if their gait becomes a little abnormal, uh, their or, uh, calf gets a little bit tight and irritated. So it, for me, it depends more on like what the patient is looking like. It just requires really an examination. Um, I don't really come in and say like, you know what, everyone with a meniscus injury needs to be needled in their quad. I would say that's where the, the art, um, the art kind of comes in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say like my home run, uh, area is probably the quads. And then after that, it's like everything else is, it, it just depends on the person and what they have going on. But I'd say the quads, hamstrings, IT band, lateral hip muscles, uh, lumbar spine if needed you know all that calf all that stuff is fair game um, but it's interesting because you'll see different people practice and you'll see some people will put needles in all of these like all the time and then you'll see people who um, don't dry needle at all don't don't even worry about any of these areas don't do any soft tissue work to them so it's interesting to see um, but it, I think it's highly dependent at least the way that that I practice and the way that I know you practice it's highly dependent on the patient the person that's in front of you and what it is that we're seeing yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, moving on to our next one, speaking of 
depending on the patient. I would say this one, not something that I have a lot of experience with. Uh, I know you recently got certified, so you can take this one, but something I find super interesting, uh, blood flow restriction training. What is it? Do you use it? Is it helpful with this patient? Yeah, so blood flow restriction training, I'll get, kind of give a quick little crash course. Essentially, you take these, uh, these cuffs that are similar to what is like a tourniquet, but it's not an actual tourniquet. Um, think of more along the lines of a blood pressure cuff that's very specific to measure uh, the pressure of the blood flow moving through your limb. The idea of this cuff is to auto-regulate and find what the, a certain amount of pressure called limb occlusion pressure is for an individual. And then you're able to block a percentage of that blood flow coming from the limb to stimulate muscle growth within a particular muscle or group of muscles. So for example, um, a lot of times after a meniscus injury, the quadricep muscle tends to be weak. So what one might do is take this blood pressure cuff or this specialized pneumatic cuff. They'll put it around the proximal aspect of like their thigh. They'll pump this up and they'll include maybe uh, 50, 60% of the limbs blood flow. And then they will actually have you do quad related exercises. The benefit of this is it takes oxygen out of the system. And you might say like, why would we not want oxygen going to our muscles? Um, and the reasoning behind that is because it creates a different environment and it stimulates a different type of muscle fiber. So when we're working in a state where oxygen is present, we stimulate what's called slow twitch fibers. When you take oxygen out of the equation, we jump right to our fast twitch fibers, which are responsible for muscle strength gains and also muscle size gains, uh, which we call like hypertrophy. So we can actually tap into those muscles with lightweight or no weight at all, depending on how much we occlude the limb. And that's what makes blood flow restriction training really special because um, what we're finding in the research right now with blood flow restriction training is if you do blood flow restriction training with no weight or very little weight and you reach levels of fatigue and you come, what they're finding is the results that you get from that type of training is very similar to if you used heavy, heavy loads and trained between rep ranges of 70 and 90% of your one rep max. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should switch to doing blood flow restriction training. It just means from a rehab perspective, uh, what's really important is you can stimulate and get those type two fibers to fire and do what you need them to do early on in rehab. So you can keep people from having muscles that atrophy or lose strength. So this is really important in an athletic population who needs to compete. Um, but say a guy went down with a really bad injury, you can get them back a lot faster because you don't have to go through the process of six to 12 weeks of rebuilding muscle. Um, you can actually maintain the current muscle that they have uh, with some of these different techniques from the blood flow restriction. Um, or you can add on more layers of muscle um, as you're working with that patient. So really it, it puts you at a, a great advantage. So again, that tip or one of the, it makes its way into one of the seven best non-surgical treatments. 
um, because it works really well in the post-operative phase. So if somebody does end up having surgery, a lot of times the quad will try to shut down um, and not do what it's supposed to do. And that has a really good way of stopping that atrophy and then kind of waking that quad back up very quickly. And then also for those who are non-surgical, uh, it's a really good option for people who may not be able to get into a squat, may not have full knee range of motion. Um, you know, maybe they can't uh, do things in load bearing positions. So um, it really kind of depends on the patient. Definitely interesting stuff. I think, at least from my outside understanding, like it's, it's nice when like, if you have trouble loading the knee because it's painful or because you're in this acute or subacute stage, it offers you to, or allows you to kind of work the muscle hard without causing like an increase in pain, which I think would be, a, it's a nice tool to have early on in the process, which is something I definitely want to learn more. Yeah. In the future. It's definitely something you want to outgrow. And as soon as you can load someone heavy, you want to load them heavy. You just get more neuro neurological adaptations from it. Um, but it's a great place to start. Um, if you know, you're having trouble getting a patient going or establishing that foundational strength, Craig, what do you think is our next one? What's a, what's tip number four or the fourth best non-surgical treatment for a meniscus tear? Number four, something we're both into something I'm practicing a little bit more now would be manual therapy. So we say manual therapy, you know, what do we mean? Basically, it's just when we're putting our hands on the patient, that is some version, you know, of manual therapy. I would say we are probably pretty similar in this respect where we're using like joint mobilization or like some soft tissue techniques would probably be my like number one go-to is or like mobilization with movement. Um, and for our listeners out there, all that means is like the therapist is either facilitating a movement for you or has their hands on and is passively moving some structures around. So what does that do? Why do we use it? You know, why does it even make the list? Um, just kind of like we talked about with like the blood flow restriction stuff, there's going to come a point in the rehab process to where we're ready to start doing some movements and doing some exercises. But because of the spot you're in with pain, it might be difficult to do that. So some of these hands-on manual techniques are kind of geared to providing uh, relatively short term, whether it be within session or within the next couple of weeks, uh, pain relief or improved tolerance to do some movements or some exercise. So just like the last one we talked about, we want to outgrow this stuff, but in the beginning, middle stages, even sometimes end stages of rehab, it's kind of a nice complement to the exercises. It's kind of just like a little bit of icing on the cake that can either hurry things along, make things a little bit more tolerable, or just kind of in general promote movement a little bit better. I know, uh, you know, just like dry needling, there's a, you know, some anti-manual therapy people, there's some very pro-manual therapy people, but I can say in my experience, I think it's nice, especially for these people, because it allows short-term improvement in motion that you can follow up with exercise. And I think that leads to a, a better benefit than just exercise alone. Um, what are your thoughts about that, Drew? I totally agree. I think it's, it, it's a bridge. I think it's a, it bridges the gap between I can't do something um, and, you know, here's what we need to get you to be able to do. And it, it kind of fills that void. It helps us get them from point A to point B. We don't do it the whole time, but we do it when it needs to be done. And it helps us to get past that, that obstacle. And once we get past it, we're good. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. There's a time and place for it. It shouldn't be used all the time. Every session depends on the patient. Um, but ideally, you know, once you get back to lifting heavy, there's really no need for me to be doing tons and tons of hands-on stuff. 
I agree with you. So moving on, the I don't know, probably the bread and butter here. What would you yeah. say at number five? What's uh, give us number five? Uh, specific strength training. I, I think at the end of the day, um, when it comes to I, honestly, we can say this across all dang near every diagnosis, probably uh, at the end of the day, specific strength training really comes down to like being the most effective thing that we have in our toolbox. All the other stuff, um, you know, the dry needling, uh, BFR, you're going to look at like manual therapy, it's going to have some short term effects it's going to be beneficial for a period of time, but it's not, it in of itself is not going to get you where you need to go. But that being said, I, I don't, I use everything in combination. So I don't know for sure that if I just, if I never did manual therapy with a patient, if I never dry needle the patient, um, if I just did specific strength training with someone, if that would take care of the issue. Um, but either way, I think it's super powerful. I think this is kind of the glue I think everything else kind of helps us get to the glue, but ultimately this is what kind of finishes off, um, you know, the patient making sure that they're hundred percent and ready to do what they want to be able to do. Uh, and by specific strength training, we mean like some isolated work, making sure that we're targeting key muscle groups that are involved with uh, meniscus tears and making sure that they're as strong and stable as they can be. I agree with you. And I think one thing that I've been, the term I've been using a little bit more when I've been talking about strength training, especially with patients like this, with like, you know, this acute meniscal irritation is I use the term like load tolerance. Yep. Like it's not that, you know, when, if something bad would happen to a meniscus, for example, it's not like all of a sudden your muscles get weak. Right. It, it's not the way that it happens. It's your brain. It's first, it's first job is to protect itself, you know? So it might, uh, it would, it, it, I would say it decreases your ability to tolerate certain things, you know, and I think that is in some way neuroprotective. It's very complex. And, you know, I can't say that for sure, but what people often ask is what's the strength training doing? Why are we doing this? And I think that we're kind of like grading the activity and the exercise to say like, okay, we can tolerate this, but we can't tolerate that. So let's do the things we can tolerate for a little bit. The more we do, the better we can tolerate it. And we can do a little more and we can do a little more, a little more. And we kind of work that threshold up till eventually you're back to what you were doing prior to injury. And I think that gets lost sometimes. It's like that graded return to activity. And I think we can lump that in with strength training. So it's, it's, it's pretty similar stuff, but I find that being a term that I'm using more and more kind of the more I progress, you know, the older I get in my career. It's really interesting because I feel like we don't have like a true term for it in our profession. Um, because, you know, if I'm seeing on average patients on a five to eight week span, Am I really like getting lots of strength gains from them? Are we really changing, you know, muscle size, uh, muscle bulk? I, I really don't think so. So I think at the end of the day, most of the stuff that we're doing is driving the nervous system and getting the nervous system to adapt to, to load a little bit better over time until they can do all the stuff they want to do. Um, I, I'd love to see more information come out on that. And maybe at some point we'll, we'll reconceptualize the term like, strength training or corrective exercise, or, you know, some of those terms that we use so often, um, because I think the job that we're doing is so much more than that. You know, you go to a strength coach and their goal is hypertrophy. Their goal is, um, to have you move more weight faster. That's not necessarily our goal. Um, I think it's a byproduct of what we do, but I think our ultimate goal is to get the patient back to doing something. Um, very rarely is it, you know, does the patient come in and say, Hey, Drew, my shoulder hurts. I can barely lift it. 
I want to PR when this is all said and done. You know what I mean? They just want to get back to working out. And sometimes they just so happen to PR a lift or something like that. So kind of an interesting concept. Great point you bring up. Um, what's number six? So number six kind of goes along with our strength training, our load tolerance stuff, but I, I think it deserves its own category. And uh, I like to call it stability training, balance training, proprioceptive training, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, of course, our muscle jobs are to move our bones and hold us steady and do all this other stuff. But sometimes, you know, people tend to forget that uh, it also tells our brain where it is in space. Sometimes if there's an insult to that area, then that system sometimes can become a little weakened or needs, you know, we need to smooth around the edges and just make it a little bit better. Um, the style I would say of exercise is a little bit different than strength training. So I think it deserves, uh, I think it deserves its own category. Um, what do you think about that? I agree. It, Cause it's, it's very different. It kind of goes back to, it, it goes away from load tolerance and it goes more into like where your body is in space and being aware of your body. Um, and I think that's a, you'll find some people who are very weak in that. Um, but they're very strong in their ability to move heavier loads. So it's kind of interesting. I wouldn't say that you'll find, you'll always find a deficit in both. Um, but you'll surprisingly find some people who are very strong, they can move weight, but they really have no clue where their body is in space. Um, so I definitely think that that's an area that we target pretty frequently. And that comes along with a lot of the single leg work we do, right, Craig? Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think that is where you said, like, it's just kind of interesting when you're comparing like strength to stability. And I, I think nowadays people like even frown on that term of like saying like functional training or stability training or, you know, um, that kind of stuff. But I think we need to be aware of where we're moving in space. And I think sometimes pain um, can alter that a little bit. I know there's a lot of people out there that are big, like pain neuroscience. And it says like, you know, we have a picture of our body and the brain and sometimes pain can smudge that picture, you know? So this is just another way of making the, the brain have a more clear picture of that area, which I find super interesting. That's, you know, not something we can cover right now. We can take, you know, days talking about that, but I think it's another compliment. Like, you know, if you're, it should just be more than just strength training alone. I think that's the reason why it belongs on the list. Absolutely. All right, Craig, bring us home with the last one. So number seven. Last one, most important one. Well, maybe not most important, most fun one. The one that people like is, you know, sport and activity specific training or graded exercise. So likely when you come in uh, prior to injury, there was something that you were doing. You know, it could be as simple as I need to be able to walk to work or I need to be able to walk to the bus so I can get to my job. Or it could be as advanced as I play professional basketball and now I need to be able to reach that level again. Regardless of what it is, I think the art of being a good physical therapist is being able to have someone take those steps to go from this initial phase of acute pain to all the way back to previous level of function. And I think there's like ups and downs there. There's times where you have to stop and slow down. There's times when you need to go fast. There's times when you need to take breaks. There's times where you can progress really fast. And that's hard to do. Um, it seems like so easy, you know, like, well, if you can't take stairs, just take small steps and then take bigger steps and then take regular steps. Now it's like, it would be nice to work like that all the time, make my job way easier. Yeah. But uh, that's a very tough thing to do, I think. And I think that 
our profession might be the only people that are equipped to do that. And that's why I think it's important that you see a skilled physical therapist. And like, that doesn't even mean to be like great examining or great with exercises. It's just knowing when to dial people back and move people forward. As, it's huge. Uh, it's an art. I think strength coaches do it really good. Like expert strength coaches that work with like, you know, pinnacle high level athletes. They're good at that mentality of like, you're in season. This is what we need to do. You're out of season. This is what we need to do. Um, when pain comes in, the everything just gets flipped upside down. It becomes much more complicated. And I think that, you know, your physical therapist has that unique skill of knowing um, how we're going to react and how to modify and how to change. So I wouldn't say it's like someone knows how to follow the steps, right? It's just someone knows when knows you well enough when to say we have to change some things up or adapt because everyone is so different in that specific uh, sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better. I think that is exactly what the art of what we do is. Um, and I think that's, you know, there's a lot of things that separate us from other providers, but I think that's a huge one um, because a lot of times it's, oh, we'll give it rest for 30 days and then try to go back to what you were doing before or um, just stop doing what you're doing. I think, you know, and I know I've gotten better at this as I've continued to work with like CrossFitters and, you know, different types of athletes in different sports. I'm able to look at a patient and say, hey, you know what, based on this injury, you should be able to do this, 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 and this. We have to avoid this and this for right now. And here are the things that you need to look out for. And in your spare time, I need you to slowly build up over here. And if you get pain, then this is how we're going to reduce that load. And it might not even be reducing the weight right away, right? It might not be completely changing the movement either. It might be tweaking hand placement. It might be switching the mode of the exercise. So going from a barbell to a dumbbell or a kettlebell. I mean, there's infinite ways that you can scale or tweak a movement. Um, but I think that's where the art of this really comes in in keeping people doing the things that they love without completely shutting them down, um, but still being able to progress them in therapy without them making their condition worse. Like it's a super fine line that we walk um, and the people that are good at what we do, um, they walk that line very, very well. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, infinite ways that kind of stuck with me there, you know, cause like that means there isn't a right path. You right. Know? I think the goal is like, you just have to be good at guiding someone through whatever path that works best, you know, not to get all hippy dippy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but sometimes we got to do that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I think that that sport and, uh, activity specific graded exercise, I think that's like kind of the funnest phase because, um, for an athlete, for sure. Um, for a non-athlete, usually we don't even have to go that far. Um, we will do that with some functional tasks. Uh, but from an athlete perspective, um, that's where they tend to shine. They're like, Whoa, I, they, they start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like, Whoa, I might actually get back to doing CrossFit again. Like, like this is what I've been waiting for. I, I might be actually able to go out there and swing a baseball bat again. Like, wow, we're actually in here and we're, we're working on swinging a bat and we're looking at this stuff. So I think like from a motivation standpoint, um, that's where you start to see things click with a lot of athletes. Yeah, that's huge. I agree with you hundred percent. All right, Craig. Well, Hey, um, you know, at this point we've, we've talked to our viewers, we've let them know the seven best non-surgical meniscus tear treatments. Um, we kind of went through some of the different things that we do to treat this. 
um, why they're effective and uh, some of the other tips and tricks that we use in our practice. Do you want to kind of wrap up this episode? Let's do it. Let's bring it home. So we know meniscus injury is really common. We know that maybe the best course of action might not be surgery mm -hmm. for this type of injury. Um, remember, this is going to take a long time, just like, like the post-operative protocol. It's going to take a little bit of time. So just remember, if you take these seven things and put them together, you can kind of see that a good program for this requires patience. And it also requires a lot of things being put together for you to slowly take these steps to get back to where you want. So if you have a meniscus injury, don't get rushed into surgery, find yourself a good physical therapist, dig in and realize that you guys are going to work together to kind of get this path back to where you were before. Awesome. Couldn't have said it better, Craig. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you for tuning into the Straight Talk Physio podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you would mean the world to us if you subscribe to this podcast and the Peak Physiotherapy and Performance YouTube channel. For more information about us, please check us out on Facebook at Peak Physiotherapy and Performance and on Instagram at P3 Physiotherapy. For more information about Craig, you can follow him at Dr. Craig G underscore PT on Twitter and Instagram. If you have any topic suggestions, comments, or questions, then feel free to email us at the straight talk physio podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for watching and we hope you have an awesome day.